path of possessions. Because it, it's been my privilege to sow just such a, a small portion into this ministry even through the years. But as I've watched and I continue to watch, the heart is just so after God. And I, I always think of myself as someone who is just going after it. And then I see someone like Melissa come along and I go, oh man, I, I got nothing. You know, I need to step up the pace, you know, and it's good because she, she encourages me and she compels me in a good way. So be encouraged as she comes. That actually goes both ways. Iron sharpens iron kind of thing. Yes, it is really a real thing. So when you see something that you want in somebody else's life and you recognize it as a blessing from the Lord, which we're going to talk about inheritance and legacy, so this works out perfectly. <laughs> when you see that in somebody else's life, go after it. And that's what we're going to talk about today is going after it. So I love the open hand analogy because the one of the stories we're going to read, and I'm going to be in 2 Kings all morning. So we're going to start in 2 Kings and I'm going to jump around. You can follow with me. You can read it later. I encourage you to read it later. Do it. It's got some really, really good stuff in there. But we've been talking about, um, Jen, I think, talked a couple weeks ago about how every spiritual uh, blessing takes more than one generation to complete. And it just so happened I ran across this quote by Dr. Don Lynch. Every purpose of God will take more than one spiritual generation to complete, and God has a strategy of leadership to assign and release spiritual resources to fulfill that call. And I want to focus on that last part, that strategy, because I believe God right now is pouring out resources, and he's pouring out strategy as one of those resources so that we can grab a hold of our generational inheritance, that generational blessing, through our families, our biological families, but also our spiritual families. And y'all in here have both. So first, let's pray, and then we're going to get right into this. Lord, thank you. Thank you that your promise and your blessing goes back a thousand generations. Thank you that before anything happened, there was that promise and that blessing. Help us to see it. Help us to see that blessing in our biological families. What's passed down generation from generation and help us to grab a hold of it and help us to see in our spiritual families, in our churches, what that blessing is and help us to gain that vision and grab a hold of it. And Lord, I just pray that you make hearts tender right now so that as I speak what we've prepared together, as it comes forth, that the hearts would just receive it and they would be able to look back in their generation, both in their family and in their spirit, spiritual family, and see that and grab a hold of it. So Proverbs 13 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that's the goal, right? We keep that as our forefront. As soon as we come together in marriage and we form a family, we actually get a double inheritance because the two become one, right? So when Russell and I got married, I had my family inheritance and blessing, And he had his family inheritance and blessing, and they merged together. And then he got to draw from mine, and I got to draw from his. And then as we built our family, the kids get both too. And they get to build on top of what we built. 
And I believe, as God's pouring out this strategy to pick up the legacy, right, I believe we're going to be stewarding a double portion generation, which is what I, which is why we're going to Second Kings. In Second Kings, there's a prophet Elisha, and he had a double mantle. He had the double portion of what Elijah had when he passed on, and he asked for it. So we're going to start actually with a different story, though. I got a little bit ahead of myself because Elisha was the prophet of Israel, and he would travel to and from. And one day he ran into this woman. We don't know the woman's name. We just know she's from Shunem. She was a wealthy woman, and she offered to give him a meal at her home. Come, sit, have a meal. And after that, whenever Elisha passed through, her and her family would bring him in, and it was a resting place. He would have a meal, and he would be on his way. But then the woman goes to her husband, and she says, you know, I think this guy who stops here that we feed, that we've been building relationship with, I think he's a man of God, and I want to build him a room. So she does. She builds him an upper room. Elisha was so taken aback by this kindness from this stranger that he was starting to build relationship with that he goes to his servant Gehazi, and he goes, bring the Shunammite woman here. I want to know what we can do for her. And he asks her, and she goes, no, there's nothing. My family takes good care of me. There's, no, there's nothing you can do. But thank you. But Elisha still thinks on this. All right? And Gehazi goes, you know, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is old. So Elisha calls her back, and he goes, this time next year you're going to have a son. He's giving her a legacy. First, he thought he was going to go to the king or the commander of the army to do a favor for her. But instead, he goes to the throne room of heaven, and he pulls down a generational blessing. And when she says, when the woman replies, my family takes good care of me, it's a nice sentiment, but women couldn't own property. When her husband passed away, she would have had to rely on her family. So it seems like she already has a plan in place for when that happens. I have no children. This is just the state of my being. This is what, you know, this is what's been going on. And I'm okay with it. And I have a plan. And maybe she closed that hand. Because as soon as Elijah said she was going to have a son, she goes, oh, no, no, no. Don't even let the hope well up inside of me. Don't get my hopes up. Talk about a place of pain and vulnerability. Maybe maybe the hurt, that closed hand, but God is so good, even if we hold on to it tight, he does pry those fingers one by one by one because he is all about leaving a legacy. He's all about that generational blessing. And he was blessing this woman because she blessed the prophet of the Lord. So a year later, she does indeed have a baby. And then the child grows up, and he's out working with his father. He's still a child. They don't say how old he is. And he gets a headache. My head. And he collapses to the ground, and his father sends him in with a servant to his mother. He ends up dying on this woman's lap. And again, she tells the servant, go get me a donkey. Now, she could have stopped right there. She could have let it go. That could have been the end of 
the story, the legacy, the inheritance, but this woman contended for her inheritance. She said no. And she went to Mount Carmel, and Gehazi comes out to meet her because Elijah goes, hey, hey, you see that lady coming? I think that's the Shunammite woman. Go see what she wants. <laughs> Gehazi goes out to her, and she's like, nope, I'm good. I'm coming to talk to Elisha. But when she gets to Elisha, she falls at her feet, his feet, and she starts weeping, and she lays her case before him. And Elisha goes, the Lord hid this for me. I had no idea. And he was going to bless her by resurrecting her son. He told his servant, you're going to go out, and you're going to take my staff, and you're going to lay it on the boy. And she goes, no. And she holds on even tighter to the feet, his, the hem of his garment, his feet. She goes, no, I'm not going to do that. You are going to come back with me. As the Lord lives, I will stay here until you return to resurrect my son. She grabbed a hold of that legacy. She grabbed a hold of that inheritance. She grabbed a hold of the vision that Elijah was a man of God and that she saw the way he did, that she could storm the very throne room of heaven to grab a hold of an inheritance that was hers. So Elisha goes, okay. Gehazi goes on ahead. He's like, go do what I told you to do. All right? But he does come with her. He comes back with her. And Gehazi gets there. He puts the staff on the boy and nothing happens. And later Elisha and the woman arrive at the house. He goes up and he lays on the boy. So the dead boy is on the bed in the upper room. The resting place of Elisha when he came to visit. The man with the double portion. Right? So he lays physically on top of him, and it says that the body began to warm. Elisha gets up, and it almost seems like it's in frustration, and he walks back and forth in the room, and he lays down again. And it was that time that the boy sneezed seven times, opened his eyes, and he was alive again, and he was returned to his mother. There was the resurrection of what could have been lost. See, there was the woman who couldn't hope because it hurt too bad. But in her kindness, God breathed life. He breathed hope into her life. And she built a room. And I think right now, we're building rooms that we have no idea what they're going to hold. We have no idea what we're actually preparing for, for the future. We're just doing it because, hey, it's the nice thing to do. I am a wealthy woman. I have a lot of money. This guy's pretty cool. Let's bless him. Let's bless the Lord. Let's honor that. Let's build him a room. But she had no idea the inheritance that was going to come to her. She had no idea of the breakthrough that was going to come to her. So look in your life, maybe. What rooms have you been building to prepare for a future that you don't even comprehend yet. The small things you're doing now, the little things, the inconsequential things that you're doing now, they're actually the seed that the Lord is going to use. Because it's a time of strategy. And God is strategically calling us to things so that when he pours out the resources, it makes a way for Jesus even if we've lost hope, even if we are holding on, he's good enough, he's big enough to open that gate. 
And she could have stopped. She could have, but she didn't. She contended for the promise. She contended for the vision. She held on to his feet and she said, oh no, you're coming with me. This isn't over yet. I love this woman, the zeal, the passion. And then later, so that was 2 Kings 4, a few chapters later in 2 Kings 8, her story actually continues. Her story wasn't over yet. There was more. So you think that's miraculous. You think that's amazing. And Elijah went on his merry way and so did she. But there's actually more. Because in the time of 2 Kings, it's after Solomon and it's a war-torn time. There's famines. There's war. At the end of 2 Kings, everybody's into exile. Nebuchadnezzar comes. It's the uh, Babylonian exile, right? So in this time, chapters later, Elijah tells her, and I couldn't find the years. I did actually look to see how many years passed, but I couldn't find it. He goes, hey, you know what? There's going to be a famine. And I'm telling you this so you can move your family. And the famine's going to last for seven years. And you're going to need to get out of here to save your husband and your son and your household. So she does. She moves away to Philistine for seven years. Or lives with the Philistines for seven years. When she comes back, her land is gone, right? She's got the deed, but apparently squatters took over. I don't know. It doesn't actually say. It just says her land was gone. And she had to go to the king to have it returned, to see if he would return it. So logically, you think, did she go to the king first? Or maybe did she go over to her land and see that it was either overrun or taken or somebody was living there? I would think she would go home first, right? And again, this woman could have stopped and said, well, you know what? We left. We had our lives. We have our health. We can just build over here. I'm a wealthy woman, remember? Her family was wealthy. Why couldn't she just build over here? But no, she wanted the land that belonged to her. She fought again for her inheritance and the legacy for her son, the property that she owned. She went to the king. And it just so happens... At that exact time, when she comes into the court of the king, Gehazi, which was now counselor to the king, he stayed with the king now, he didn't follow Elisha anymore, he's telling a story. And what story is he telling the king? He's telling the king the story of the resurrection of this woman's son. And in the middle of the story, he goes, look, she's right there. It even says that, look, my lord, the king. Here is the woman. And the king goes, wow, is that true? And the woman was able to tell her story. And the king restored her land. But not only did he restore the land, he gave her, uh, what does it say? He gave her the value of any crops that had been harvested during her absence. So while she was gone for seven years, if anybody received a profit from her land, it was restored to her. Talk about a double portion Talk about contending for a legacy. How many times could she have stopped along the way? But she held on. Not at first, but through the way. She held on. Maybe there's some things that we need to hold on to, too. Maybe there are some things we're gripping and God's saying, hey, open your hand, because then I can pour through you a blessing for the future. 
Because remember, it's a time of strategy. And if we're called to counsel and raise up a double portion generation, we have to grasp a hold of our inheritance. We have to grasp a hold of the vision. And I'm going to tell you why the vision is so important. Because I think Elisha liked this woman so much because he reminded her. No, she reminded him of himself. Because Elisha had to grasp a hold of his double portion as well. And I think it's significant they don't actually name this woman. They just call her the Shunammite woman. They could have given her a name. She had a name. They could have called the by her husband's name. They could have referred to back, referred back to her as her husband's name or her son's name, but they didn't. And I think it's significant that the word Shunam, the Hebrew word Shunam, means double resting place. Because that is indeed what happened there. A double portion was poured out in a resting place that was made for God. So to know the vision of Elisha, we have to actually look back real quick at Elijah. Their names are so easy to mix up. So let's see if I can do this without mixing them up too much. And Elijah was a prophet to Israel. And he one day threw his mantle, his cloak on Elisha, and Elisha followed him. And before Elijah was taken up to heaven... Elisha asked him for a double portion. And Elijah's response, I thought, was interesting. So Elisha goes, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit to become your successor. And Elijah replies, you have asked a difficult thing. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. If not, then you won't. So we usually think of when you see me, And we know that Elisha chased Elijah down. There were three times where Elijah was like, I'm going to go to the Jordan River. I'm going to go to Bethel. I'm going to go here. And Elisha goes, no, you're not. Not without me. I'm coming with you. He grabbed a hold of the prophet. He grabbed a hold of the vision. He grabbed a hold of the inheritance. And he didn't let go. So when indeed... The fire and the storm from heaven comes down to take up Elijah. I do believe he saw with physical eyes. And he goes, my father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. And then they disappeared from from sight and Elijah was taken up. I do believe he saw it physically with his own eyes. I don't doubt that for a second. But rabbinical teaching also tells us that what he saw... Wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that he saw the chariot and charioteers of Israel, okay? It was that he was able to grasp the vision. He could see things now how Elijah saw. He could literally see the vision Elijah held. So it wasn't necessarily about physical sight as much as it was about spiritual sight. And because he could see how Elijah saw, he grabbed a hold of the vision and he was able to carry it out. And Elijah, Elisha had to actually fight a little bit for his inheritance too. So he rents his clothes and he picks up the mantle that fell to the ground when Elijah went up and he goes back to the river and there's a group of 50 prophets waiting on the other side of the river. 
Now, on their way there, Elijah took his mantle, smacked the river, the water parted, and they crossed on dry land to wherever they were going. Elisha does the same thing and nothing happens. But he looks to the sky and he goes, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And it was then the rivers parted. It was when he contended for the vision, when he contended for the inheritance. He could have walked away, but he didn't. He pushed through. What do you guys have to push through right now? It's okay to have to push through things. Because you're not just doing it for you. Sometimes when we get so self-focused, it's easy to shut it down. Be like, well, whatever. It just affects me. Like, I'm just going to go away. I'm going to sit in my room. Who cares? I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But actually, you are because you are called to steward a legacy. And I believe we're called to steward a double portion legacy. And that's what we're building the rooms for. That's what we're holding onto the hem of the garment of Christ for. That's what we're going after. Elijah successfully passed that on. But Elisha had a little problem. So when Elisha was sick in his last illness, the king Jehoash, Jehoash visited him. And his man's on his deathbed. And the king comes and he goes, My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. What a weird thing to say to somebody who's dying, right? But it's not. Because he's asking for what Elisha had. Just like Elijah asked, or Elisha asked Elijah, we're asking for that double portion. He goes, I want what you have. Now this man was the king. He had a legacy. He had an inheritance. He had probably a strategy and a plan, but he wanted more. He was pursuing for more. And because he asked, Elisha gets up and he goes, get a bow and arrow. And he goes, do you see this arrow? This arrow is victory over your enemies in Aram. And he tells him to shoot it out the window. And he shoots it out the window. And he goes, great. You have victory over Aram. Now, pick up these arrows, all these other arrows, and strike them against the ground. So the king does. He picks them up, and he strikes them three times. But what Jehoash didn't see was that he should have struck them more. And Elisha became angry and he said, if only you would have struck five or six times, then you would have had complete victory. But as it is, you will win three times. You'll have victory over three kingdoms. And that's it. The king couldn't see how Elisha saw it. And there wasn't any instructions other than, do you see this arrow? This arrow represents your victory. Shoot it out the window. Do you see those arrows? He actually gave him a hint. These arrows are your victory. But because of the lack of zeal, because the king, like the Shunammite woman and Elisha, didn't have that, I'm not going anywhere. I'm pulling on the hem of this garment. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to get my inheritance. I'm going to see the vision. I'm going to lead the legacy. He didn't see that. And because the king couldn't see how Elisha saw it, he only received partial victory, which was still a victory. 
I mean, the northern kingdoms lasted longer than the southern kingdoms. But just think how long or how victorious the northern kingdoms could have held out had the man had the zeal or the passion, the drive to see and to pick up. I don't know. That's my thought. So when a prophet asks you to do something, just for good measure, do it seven times. It's the number of completeness, right? (laughs) Just kidding, but only a little bit. Like, do it with passion and do it seven times. Fourteen. There you go. (laughs) So because this is a time of strategy and increase, we need to find our inheritance. We need to sit down, because we all have an inheritance. Everybody, everybody in this room, again, I'm going to tell you, you have an inheritance. You have a familial inheritance, and you have a spiritual inheritance. Sometimes they're mixed together, and they're one, and sometimes they're separate. But that's okay, because you just get more. But we have to find it, and we have to claim it. And we have to steward it and bring increase. And here is where we have to be bold. And we have to actually go out and get the double portion. We have to go out and find the vision. We have to chase the person down, so to speak. And we have to uphold the vision. And you know what? I don't even think it has to be a physical person. You know how many mantles I think have been um, resting that should be active today because they couldn't have been passed on because of the vision? Elijah's actually went to his grave. We know that because when a dead body gets thrown in on top of them, as the marauders go through, that dead body pops to life. And he runs out of that grave. How freaky would that be? Hey, throw Joe in there, we gotta go. Oh my gosh! He chases you down, right? Like, how freaky would that be? But I believe even if you study a person's life, a historical person, that you can inherit their mantle. If you can see how they saw, I believe there's inheritance and legacy for places too. I believe Genoa has an inheritance and a legacy. Our country has an inheritance and a legacy. Because there was a promise before any dysfunction. There was a promise and a purpose and a blessing to a thousand generations. And that came first. And we cry out for revival, but I believe we find revival when we see the vision that God sees for us. When we can get a hold of the vision of God, and we can see ourselves, when we can see others, when we can see nations, when we can see communities the way God sees them. That is a holy and powerful thing. That is a holy and powerful thing. And I believe God's giving strategy right now to every family in here to learn how to see how he sees. If you have to start with you, start with you. If you have to start with your family, start with your family. If you can start with the country, start with the country. If you can start with the world, great. But it has to be done in relationship. Oh, I have a picture. Because revival is the root system, it's the vision, it's the intake. I'm bringing it all in. 
or in this case up because it's a tree. I'm bringing it all in. I'm taking it all in. And then I have to pass it on. Revival and Reformation have been like the two big buzzwords, right? Everybody's talking about revival. Everybody's talking about Reformation. And I think it's a little funny because, oh, thank you. I forgot about the camera. Thank you. All right. Everybody's talking about revival and Reformation. And I think it's funny because the people who yell revival, you can usually look and go, Ah, uh, yes, of the fivefold ministry, I can probably pick your heart in your ministry. And the people who are yelling Reformation, I go, ah, yes, I could probably pick your uh, place on the wheel of the fivefold ministry, right? But we have to remember that uh, revival and Reformation are married, and they can't be divorced. And if you have one without another, you cannot steward a double portion generation because it peters out. It dies out. You have to have both because this is taking in. When I'm in a personal state of revival, the church is in a state of revival, we're constantly receiving the holiness and power of God, the life-changing things, right? But if we only take in, we become like the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake. You guys know what I'm referring to when I say that? The Dead Sea is a body of salt water inland, that is fed with freshwater streams. Those streams come in, but nothing goes out. And it's become so salty, it's saltier than the ocean, and life cannot be sustained. And it's that we have the same, the same thing, I don't know if it's a phenomenon, but we have the same thing in our country, in Utah, the Great Salt Lake. It's fed by freshwater streams, and there is no outflow. Things die. So if we get stuck... In revival without reformation, it actually is going to lead to death because there's no going out. But reformation is the change. It's the fruit, right? It's what we want to see in the country. It's what we want to see uh, impact culture, impact the seven mountains. But reformation without revival is like rules without relationship. It becomes law. It becomes salvation by works. So you could say revival is faith without works, and you could say reformation is salvation by works, and both lead to death. But this part right here, and Pastor Fred just preached a whole sermon last Sunday on relationship, is the structure that bridges the revival and the reformation, and that's relationship. Because we can take it in, and through relationship, we can pass on the vision. We can pass on the inheritance. We can show, or we can teach people to see how we see, so that we can go out together and to reform the world. That we carry the revival from the root all the way to the fruit. It's a very Elijah House drawing right here. We had that yesterday. I woke up and this picture was in my mind and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But, but you need to have that. In order to have a double portion generation, the revival has to go out. It has to be seen. It has to be passed on. And it leads to the Reformation. But it all starts with recognizing what you carry. 
stewarding what you carry because the small things are the big things. They really are. Because you have no idea what the little seed you have in your hand when you plant it in the ground is going to produce. You have no idea what the rooms you're building now are going to hold. You have no idea what the arrows in your hand may represent for your future. So, I think we're going to pray. Well, I know we're going to pray. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you have cast a vision. Thank you that we get to steward the vision. That we hold on to the hem of your garment and we don't let go. And we contend for the blessing and the strategy and what you are pouring out right now. And we ask for the wisdom and we ask for the revelation to pass that on, to leave an inheritance, to leave a legacy. We ask that you keep our hand open so that we can take in and we can give away. And the more we give, because you are such a generous God, the more we give, it really is a spiritual principle, the more we're going to receive. So Lord, in everyone's heart right now, I just pray that you plant a seed of vision, that you plant a seed of hope and revival. And where it's closed and that those fingers are tight, Lord, I pray just one by one, gently and lovingly, just open that hand. And I pray those seeds grow a root structure that always takes in your holiness, that always takes in your power. And that it grows out and your glory is shown to the whole world. That we steward it in relationship and bring reformation to our country and our planet. Jesus' name. And just remember, guys, as you're looking, the blessing was there before anything else. The promise was there before anything else. Thank you.